Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio, that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. My name is Joel. I get to be the pastor here. I've been particularly encouraged over the last couple of weeks. We've been making our way through this series that we've titled Ephesians, but the subtitle is A Life That Honors Christ. And we've talked about significant change that would happen in the life of a Christian if they really want to follow the Bible. And I got a text from a good friend about two weeks ago after our conversation in here about sexual immorality. And this is what the text said on Sunday. I deleted the last social media that I had, YouTube. Even though you were promoting it, he was deleting it. Uh, It was the last gateway for me. I didn't struggle with watching inappropriate videos or anything, but somehow every other image or video ad was an athletic fit girl in a miniskirt, so I just deleted it. I don't want any more hints. And then he said something that I can relate to. He said, and now I have nothing to do when I go to the bathroom. I thought, yeah, I've been there. And then this week, after last week's message about the power of words, about what a Christian sounds like, someone in our church texted me this, I'm so thankful for the way our church so clearly and lovingly teaches the Bible. I said something I shouldn't have today, and the Lord so gently and lovingly convicted me, but in a way that was like, I've created you for so much more. I didn't feel condemned at all. I just wanted to please my father more and become like him, and it was a very special moment for me. And, I, and those are just two of, of a lot of messages that I've received over the last couple of weeks of, of God just moving in people's lives and, and making a difference. And, and what's important for us to remember is that God does not love those people anymore and doesn't approve of them any more than he did before they made those decisions. Because... God's love for us doesn't depend on our decisions and what we do for him. It's all, he does it for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And, but because of this book, these people are choosing to walk in the way of love and they're finding out, they're finding out that God's not trying to rip us off, but he's trying to set us free. And he really does have our best interests in mind. I'm loving this series that we're going through here in Ephesians, but as I've shared, I think every week, Ephesians was not originally a book. It was a letter written by a first century missionary named Paul to a group of Christians in a city called Ephesus. And these group, this group of Christians in Ephesus, they, it, they were part of a church that Paul actually planted himself with some of his friends. Paul had been their pastor for three years. And then he moved on to another city, was arrested there, taken into house arrest in Rome. And he writes his friends in Ephesus a letter. And we have it in our Bibles as the book of Ephesians. The first half of the letter, chapters 1, 2, and 3, packed with theological truth that we need to know. And then chapters 4, 5, and 6, packed with commands that we're not just supposed to know, but we're actually supposed to follow And this is, uh, I've tried to say this very carefully and very consistently, the commands in the latter half of this letter, it's not a list of things for us to try so that we can become something that we are not, but rather it's ways 
for us to become what we already are in Christ. We have been given new life in Christ, new hearts in Christ. And so the, the, what, we're, what we're studying today, what we're looking at today, this is not a list of ethical ideas that everyone should attempt. No, no, no. This is what a Christian is called to do because they're in Christ. They're becoming what God has declared that we are. And if it's true, if God really has given us new hearts and new life, how could we remain the same in every area of our lives? It would be impossible. If we took time to go through chapters 1, 2, and 3, you know, if you're newer here and you kind of want to catch up on everything, well, everybody else would be upset if I went back and went through the whole thing again. So uh, just a, a note to you, we have a podcast that comes out every Sunday. We've got a video that comes out every Tuesday. And even more importantly than that, we have a Bible that we want to give you today on your way out. There's a stack of them right there, and you can take a Sharpie and put your name on it. That would be our gift to you. And, and this is what I really need you to know. If you're just tuning in, and if you're going, what is this about? What is this book about? What is the whole Bible about? It's about this. Jesus Christ is great, and he can give you a new heart, and he can give you a new life. And if nobody has ever walked that through with you and explained that, we would love the opportunity to get to do that. Today, we're in Ephesians chapter 5. We're going through four verses today. And remember, I think I may have even said it 90 seconds ago. These are commands that the Christian should follow to walk in the way of love, to live in this others-oriented life. This, this is how a Christian shows, I've been transformed. I've been given a new heart. And, and at times, as you read Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, our natural inclination is to dig in our heels and say, I do not want to change. But the Bible demands that we do. It, 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 there's, a, there's a moment in the life of somebody who puts their faith in Jesus that we call it justification. It's a Christianese word. It's this moment, boom, where we pray and we receive Christ and we are declared innocent in the eyes of God. And then immediately following justification begins this process of sanctification, which is the process of becoming more and more and more like Jesus. It's this process of walking in the way of love, living in an others-oriented way. And, and, and today what we're going to find out, it, it, it means that we walk in wisdom, so let's look at these four verses here in Ephesians 5, verses 15, 16, 17, and 18. This is what it says. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. So in summary, don't be foolish, be wise. Don't waste your time, make good use of it. Don't get drunk, be filled with the Spirit. Let's go through it just kind of one verse at a time and discover maybe a little more about what God's trying to say here. Verse 15, it says, be careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Paul emphasizes it. He says, he doesn't just say, don't be unwise, be wise. He says, be careful. In fact, be very careful 
Why does he need to emphasize the need to be very careful? Because we are hardwired to be idiots. I was FaceTiming with two of my friends from ninth grade last night and was reminded of the idiot that I am. And if you think back to eighth grade or ninth grade you, I imagine that you might think the same. I, I was reminded last night that when I was in ninth grade, my friend had a wart, and in, I, I said, I, I know how to fix this. Well, you just have to burn it off. And so I took a lighter, and I held it up to his arm and attempted to burn his wart off, and he still has a scar and still has a wart from that in ninth grade. In hindsight, I thought, oh, you're supposed to freeze it off, but... Anyways, the damage was done. I'm an idiot. And then here's another way that I'm an idiot. The person that I love the most in this world, my wife Morgan, is the person that I'm the most selfish with and the most unkind to in the way that I speak. I'm an idiot. I'm a hard, wired, unwise person. That's how I was born. So I have to be careful then to be wise. Early in a person's faith, early in a person's life, as they start to read the Bible and spend time with Christians and go to church, they might be inclined at the beginning to ask questions like this. They, they read this and they go, what am I allowed to do now? What is okay? What can I do? Those are questions that the Corinthians, another group of people that Paul had to write letters to, they, they were asking a lot of questions. What are we allowed to do, Paul? What, are, what can we do? What is okay to do? And the big debate in the Corinthians church was, what are we allowed to eat? We've been told for years that we're not allowed to eat pigs, but all the Gentiles, they love bacon. What, what are we allowed to do? And so they ask Paul, is bacon okay? Are hot dogs allowed? Can we eat ham? These are the questions they're asking. And Paul responds and says, friends, everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial. In other words, there's great freedom and grace in Christ. You're allowed, you can do a lot of things. There's forgiveness on the other end of it. But the question morphs as we spiritually mature. It changes from what can I do to what should I do? It changes from what am I allowed to do to what is best? What, what is okay to what is wise? What is beneficial? Not just to me, but those around me. Those are the questions that a mature Christian or even a mature person begins to ask. I interacted with a 13-year-old this week who told me about a movie that they were going to watch. And I said, are you really going to watch that? And before I could even finish my sentence or my question, this 13-year-old said, I'm 13, it's PG-13, I'm allowed. And I said, on my high horse, I, I, I hopped up on him, and I said, a mature Christian doesn't ask, what can I do? A mature Christian asks, what should I do? And then he said, shut up. And then he watched the movie. <laughs> and I can only throw shade because I was dumber as a 13-year-old. Because that's how a 13-year-old thinks. It's how a young person thinks. It's how a young Christian thinks. What can I do? What am I allowed to do? What can I get away with? And as we grow up, we begin to ask better questions. What should I do? What is best? What is beneficial? What is wise? Paul says, be careful. Be very careful. Not to be unwise, but to be wise. What will we do if we're wise? Well, verse 16 says that we'll make 
the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. So what Paul is not saying is that these days in Ephesus are peculiarly evil. I don't even know if I pronounced that very well, but I think you get what I'm saying. Even though they may have been, that's not what Paul is making a comment about. Paul here is making a comment that the world in which we live in is a world in which evil is present. And you can't possibly disagree with me on that. It's important for us to understand that the world as God created it was perfect, sinless, not broken. But this world that God created has been spoiled by man through sin. And then now, for, now it is fallen, it is broken, and it is full of evil. And, and for us that sit here in Gehenna, it's easy to point to other states or other places in the world and go, yeah, that's evil. But it is a lot more uncomfortable for us to look at ourselves or look at our friends or our schools or our kids and go, evil is here. Like, this is evil. Consider the parent-teacher conference. The mom and dad walk in. They're hearing about how their first grader's doing, and the teacher begins by saying, well, they're a little this way, they're a little that way, they're not so nice to their friends sometimes, they're, they talk, and, and the parents just cut the teacher off and go, so what you're saying is our son is bad. And the teacher goes, well, no, no, we would never say that. And the parents go, no, I think the best way to say this is that they're evil. And the teacher would go, you can't say that in school. No, of course not. The kids aren't evil. But the reality is, friends, is that what, that's what the Bible says. Not just here, but over and over and over. And you th- we might be tempted to think, well, that's a terrible thing for the Bible to say. But that's not true. Because unless we get the diagnosis right, then there is no possibility of a cure. How can we get better if we don't know what we're sick with, if we're not willing to be honest? See, all of us here, we're we're able to look around and clearly see that the world is dark and broken and full of hatred, that the days are evil. And, And you might be tempted to look at me right now and say, Joel, it's been a nice weekend so far. Why? Why the gloom? Why? Why are we talking about this? Because even on our best days, with all the accomplishments and the achievements and the programs and the progress, even on our best days, the fact of the matter is that in every person, there's a deep, deep shadow that overshadows even our greatest achievements. And we are hard pressed to explain why we are the way that we are without the Bible. If you have ever been angry, confused, when you see a war in the world. I I mean, I I hear about war war going on in other places in the world, and I just think, why? 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 It's just an expression of the war that is going on in our hearts. Why why would be, I mean, nations are just the collections of individuals. So why would it be surprising that there's a war going on somewhere in the world when husbands fight against wives, when parents fight with children, when bosses fight with employees? Why does it surprise us? We have the capacity somehow to be jealous and hateful, to, to have bitterness towards people. And we weren't taught this in school. We're just naturals at it. We're just naturally good at harboring those kinds of feelings. 
When we looked, remember, remember when social media came out 20 years ago or so? At first it was like, wow, this is just really going to connect people. And it is amazing that you can FaceTime with people across the world, not saying that it's all bad. Listen to what the founder of Twitter said a couple years ago. I thought, this is Evan Williams, I thought once everybody could speak freely and exchange information and ideas, the world is automatically going to be a better place. He says, I was wrong. Wasn't he? Because the days are evil and the world is broken. And unless we get the diagnosis right, there can be no possibility for a cure. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, let me, let me just explain what God did in this space. God, through the prophet Jeremiah, says this, you have terrible hearts. And then God, through the prophet Ezekiel, says, I will give you new hearts. What we want to think is that we don't need a heart transplant surgery. We need, we've got eczema. We just need a little cream. Just patch us up. We're mostly good. But the reality is, is that we need a heart transplant surgery. We need new hearts. All of us, every person that has been born. And if that is stunning or shocking or seems severe, it should be. It should be because that that is the depth of the deadness that we're born in, and that is the, that is the life that God offers us. And it only, this cannot be found in anything else other than the person of Jesus Christ. He is the one that can give us a new life and a new heart. So in light of that, in light of the fact that we're kind of making our way through a broken world, even if we have a new heart, it's still, we're still surrounded by sin and brokenness, and so it's tempting to want to wander back into that prison cell. In light of that, be careful how you walk. Don't be foolish, be wise. And one place specifically that Paul wants the Ephesians to understand, he says, one place we need to use wisdom, don't get drunk and be filled with the Spirit. So we should talk about that for a second. Churches all over the world are all over the map on alcohol. I grew up in a context where sipping champagne at a wedding would have been seen as scandalous. And now I'm pastoring a church where I'm not sure if any of you don't drink beer. I know people in this church that are brewing their own beer in their garage and sharing the gospel over one. You know what I'm saying? So, so there's a lot of people in a lot of different places. I was texting with a friend about two weeks ago when I told him I was going to have this conversation. He says, I've been in church my whole life. I can't remember ever really talking about this. It just feels like this falls into this category of the don't ask, don't tell. And I said, not at Three Creeks. In Three Creeks, we're going to be honest. We're going to talk about things that are going on in our lives. And so verse 18 says, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Christians, here are some questions I have. Are we allowed to drink? Should we drink? How much are we allowed to drink? How often can we drink? Can we drink at a church event? You want to talk about making missionary kid Joel a little uncomfortable? What if we're at a wedding or a sporting event or a bachelorette party or we're on vacation 
or we're at home by ourselves? What if we're around somebody who struggles with alcoholism? This says, don't get drunk, but can we get tipsy? How tipsy? Let's consider what the Bible says about this topic in other places other than Ephesians 5. There's really no question that it's to be regarded as one of God's good gifts. God planted the first vineyard. He knew exactly what would happen when a grape would be crushed, fermented, stirred, and pressed. And he knew people 2,000 years later, I guess maybe even more than that, would be taking it and bottling it and putting Snoop Dogg's face on the bottle. Like God knew all of this was going to happen. In Psalm 104, he knew that wine would make a man feel glad. He knew that it would be served in the church's most important meals and in the courts of the temple, Matthew 26 and Isaiah 62. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that we're supposed to eat food with gladness and drink wine with a joyful heart. Paul writes to his protege, Timothy, who, by the way, was pastoring the church at Ephesus when he wrote it. And he says, hey, I've been heard, I heard that you've got some stomach problems. You should have a little wine. It'll make you feel better. I don't think Paul was on to it there because for me, the acid reflux just goes up when I have wine. But hey, Paul wasn't a doctor. He was a missionary. Some people who are completely against alcohol have said that Paul was encouraging Timothy to wipe it on his stomach and that seems like a stretch. Jesus. <laughs> I thought about illustrating. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> thank you, Caleb. Jesus at a wedding took a jar of water and turned it into wine. So without question, it's to be regarded as one of God's good gifts. But there are so many warnings in the Bible that accompany this gift. If you were to ask me the question, is beer good? I could ask you the question, is a chainsaw good? And the answer that you would say is, well, depends on how you're using it. It can be good, but if you disregard the warnings, it could kill you. And, and so these warnings accompany the gift. Listen to some of these other ones. Proverbs 20 verse 1, wine is a mocker, beer a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Be careful. Be very careful to not live as unwise, but to live as wise. Moses describes wine as the venom of serpents. Paul writes to the Romans and says, if you're going to drink, okay, but don't drink when it could have a negative effect on a brother or sister, it would, if it would cause them to stumble or to sin or for them to be led astray. Maybe you can handle it, but if they can't handle it, don't drink. It's not worth it. Hosea writes, beware of wine. It takes away understanding. Alcohol is marketed to us as a, um, a stimulant. It'll get you going. But the reality is, scientifically, is that it's a depressant. It might give you a boost at the beginning, but it's a depressant. It depresses parts of the brain that aid us in having self-control, judgment, understanding, balance, and wisdom. It takes away understanding. Be careful, Christians. Be very careful not to live as unwise, but as wise. And then just, just let this soak in for a minute. 
Don't rush through this one. Who has anguish? Who has sorrow? Who is always fighting? Who is always complaining? Who has unnecessary bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? It is the one who spends long hours in the taverns trying out new drinks. Don't gaze at the wine, seeing how red it is, how it sparkles in the cup, how smoothly it goes down. From the end, it bites like a poisonous snake. It stings like a viper. Don't, 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 don't rush past that. Be careful. Consider this. It's obvious that it's a gift, but it's even more obvious that it's dangerous. C.S. Lewis, the writer of Screwtape Letters, one of my favorite books in the world. If you've never read it, it's about, it's, it's uh, this head demon named Screwtape who writes to his nephew Wormwood on how to take down the enemy, which are Christians. It's religious satire. It's amazing. This is one of the things that Screw tape writes to Wormwood on how to get Christians off course. He says, what we want to try to do is get our enemies, the Christians, to take good things that God has given them at the wrong time, with the wrong people, in the wrong quantity. If we can do that, we've really begun to lead them astray. Get them to take the good stuff with the wrong people at the wrong time and the wrong quantity, that is the key to success here. And think about it. That's, that's how Satan gets us from a lot of different angles. He, God gives us food. It's to be enjoyed. If we take it in the wrong quantity, it leads to gluttony. He says, sex, it's a gift. Enjoy it. We do it with the wrong person. It's sexual immorality. And it's the same with alcohol. Take it in the wrong quantity with the wrong people at the wrong time. And, and what, what was designed to bless you has actually destroyed your life. And we all know someone's life that these scriptures are proving to be true about. We all know somebody who, who didn't listen to this stuff and has let it just completely derail their life. And it would be wise of us to not be naive. It would be wise for us to say, I'm not immune Holier people than me have fallen into this trap because the days are evil. The, the verse really, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, instead be filled with the Spirit. This verse is really encouraging us to not let anything have control over us other than the Holy Spirit of God. And that is why when people ask me, Joel, is drinking a sin? I say, well, it depends. And they say, well, what do you mean? I say, give it up for six months. And if that is met with this, well, no, 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 Jesus turned the water into wine and, you know, Ecclesiastes, then I go, well, sounds like it's a sin for you. Because it sounds like it has an element of control over your life, which would mean that I could ask the same, if you say, is drinking a sin? Well, it depends. Is fantasy football a sin? It depends. Is decorating a sin? It depends. Is coffee a sin? Is golf a sin? Is, it, it depends. These are all good gifts that God gives us to enjoy, but if we take them in the wrong quantity at the wrong time, if we need it so much, if we would be just, just in despair without it, well, it sounds like it's a sin. 
It's okay for us to have wine, but it's not okay for wine to have us. It's okay for us to have beer. It's not okay for beer to have us. And then fill in the blank with whatever else God has given you to enjoy. And it's important for us to acknowledge too that alcohol can have us even if we never get drunk. Even if we never get actually physically intoxicated drunk, it's important to acknowledge that alcohol can still have us. We can still be controlled by alcohol without being drunk. If you are drinking more than anybody else knows, if you're inclined to do it in secret, sounds like it might have you. If you need it for the event to be fun, it sounds like it might have you. If you find yourself resisting what this is saying and what I am saying, it sounds like it might have you. You would be wise to at least consider that. And if you're going, is it a prop? Give it up for six months. And if you get squirmish at that idea, it sounds like it might have you. Paul says, be very careful how you live. Not as wise, excuse me, not as unwise, but as wise. Remember, as I close here, what Paul said to the people who were having the bacon dilemma. Can we eat pork? The Jews didn't want to. The Gentiles did. Paul, what are we allowed to do? What, what can we do? What is okay to do? And that's what young Christians ask. Can we drink? Am I allowed to drink? Is it okay to drink? But the better questions, the questions that a mature Christian asks, are what should I do? And is it best? And is it beneficial? And is it wise? Because when Paul was talking to them about the bacon dilemma, he, he gave them one verse that kind of guides them through the decision-making process. This is what Paul writes to him. He says, no one should seek their own good, but the good of others. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. You see, the question, should I drink or not drink, the Bible doesn't explicitly say it isn't black and white. There isn't a, a law. There isn't something that you can reference, a policy in the Bible. But God gives us the Holy Spirit to navigate those questions. But it's important to ask the right questions. It's important to not ask, can I, like a 13-year-old does, but rather, should I? like a mature Christian does. It's important to ask questions like this. Is it good for my kids? Is it good for my kids? Is it good for my friends? Is it good for my spouse? Is it good for my parents? Is it good for others? There are times as mature Christians to not only know our freedoms in Christ. Listen to this. There are times that we're not only supposed to know our freedoms in Christ, but to stand ready in love to forego our rights for the good of others. There are times to say no, not even for your own good, but for the good of others. And we've got to believe that God has our best interests in mind. Proverbs 27, this is the last thing I'll say. Proverbs 27 says this, the prudent man, the wise person, foresees danger and takes precaution. But the fool ignores danger and faces the consequences. So the prudent man, the wise person, they're given a warning and they say, I, 
I'm going to take precaution. I'm going to be honest with myself about this. I'm going to step away for a period of time. I'm going to tell somebody about what I'm struggling with. I'm going to take precaution. The fool says, what's this guy talking about? This isn't a big deal. I'm fine. There's nothing to be worried about. That's what a fool does when they read these scriptures. But a wise person says, I need to take precaution. And a fool faces the consequences. So, so really the question of the day is, which one will you be? Will you hear these scriptures and will you take precaution? Or will you hear them and say, ah, that's for somebody else. I guess that's for you to decide. Let me pray for you. God, would you help us to not live as unwise, but as wise. We need your help. Thank you for your grace. As we sing the words, I surrender, I pray that our hearts would mean it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.